and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get into today's topic, have you rated and reviewed The Dirt on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you can do Whatever. that? Um, yeah. If you have, thank you. If you haven't yet, we'd be over the literal moon if you could take a second to do it. Even as a five-year-old show, it makes a huge difference for us. So remember, five years, five stars. Five mm-hmm. years, five stars. And now that we're back to some kind of regular content output, doing our best, we are ready to get into the ears of lots of new listeners. And that'll really help us, the the, the review thing. Okay, today's topic. It's Quebecly Tepe. We're finally doing it. Uh, uh, but, and I know this is wild, stay with me. We're talking about the archaeological site of Gebekli Tepe, similar sites in the area, and the greater context of the Neolithic in southeastern Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, give or take. Uh, What was life like? What was it like to be a person living their best life in the pre-pottery Neolithic? That's it. That's the episode. And it's going to be awesome. So let's get right into it. So we're starting at very much the later end of Gebekli Tepe's history with its rediscovery and first excavations. So the site was first noted in a survey in 1963, but it wasn't excavated until a German archaeologist named Klaus Schmidt opened the site in 1995. Local farmers had found artifacts while plowing there and building boundary walls, and they brought them to the local museum. And then a German guy got involved. So he led excavations there until his death in 2014, at which point work continued as a joint project of Istanbul University, Schönlorfe Museum, and the German Archaeological Institute. And Göbekli Tepe was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site more recently than I would have expected in 2018. Um, If you would like, you can go there in the show notes, there will be a link to a Sketchfab 3D model and you can kind of manipulate it, move it around on your computer and uh, see the, what has been excavated at the site, which is a small percentage of the site. So we'll be talking about Quebecli Tepe and other sites like it in the bigger context of the Neolithic period in this region. And that means that we should talk about the idea of the Neolithic revolution, where those ideas came from, and how those ideas have evolved and influenced research today. To talk about the Neolithic Revolution, we need to talk about uh, Veer Gordon Child. Uh, So Child uh, was born in 1892 and died in 1957, and he was an Australian archaeologist, and he specialized in European prehistory and very big ideas, and Mm -hmm. also... um, wrote some very accessible synthetic works of sort of said big ideas that uh, sort of were um, taken up in more popular understandings of archaeology. So mm-hmm. early in his career, he heard about this guy, Marx, and <laughs> um, he embraced socialism. So he was very much a, a uh, both a Marxian archaeologist and also a Marxist. And so this would sort of stick with him and um, inform his interpretations of the past. Um, So um, he was a proponent of the concept of an archaeological culture. So this idea that a recurring assemblage of artifacts type is a signal for a distinct cultural group. 
Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before. It's really great mm-hmm. as like a foundational theory, but there, you know, it's got some drawbacks. Uh, and <laughs> he also um, excavated one of Anna's tippy top wish list sites to visit, uh, Scarabray, um, among many other sites in the Orkney Isles. Um, oh, they're so bad. Okay. Um, and, and then the, the thing about his Marxism is that it, um, is why he came up with the Neolithic revolution. Um, so he used Marxist ideas such as historical materialism, uh, in, in that like people are, uh, both informed by and inform their circumstances, sort of their material circumstances. So, um, the, what they have, um, access to in terms of what they produce and what they receive uh, as a very bad description of historical materialism, <laughs> uh, but I'm riffing. Um, and this is an interpretive framework for archaeological data. So the idea is like we look at archaeological traces to determine how class structures change through time. So like both class structures and just sort of more generally how people organize themselves um, Mm -hmm. into groups Um, and in ways in which um, people uh, group themselves in terms of labor to sustain themselves. And, And so looking at this sort of stratification of societies. So he is largely credited with uh, germinating, if not blooming, uh, the ideas of the Neolithic Revolution and the Urban Revolution. This very like functional economic view of like the three age system. So you got like the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. Um, mm-hmm. And each of these was marked by a revolution. And We've said this before, and we say this frequently, but we've never talked about. Uh, we, okay, so we what we have said is it's not a revolution; it's gradual. But we've never talked about why it was characterized as a revolution in the first place. So, uh, Marxism sort of presages, uh, like Marx presages, <laughs> if not um, calls for, is a revolution. And it's this idea that things happen in upheavals, that there comes a point beyond which things must change. When that spark happens, that spark of revolution happens, it starts a process of something anew. This is, so it wasn't that child was seeing in his work and the work that he he read from others this sudden change it's that we're we're looking at a very flattened version of history of the past yeah, when we look into the archaeological record so it's very it's you know even something that's a pretty narrow apart from very few contexts and within which you have like a Herculaneum or Pompeii, or you have a Hasenu level four, like those sorts of things where you have a single stratum, like where you have a very bad day um, for (laughs) a lot of people. had a bad time. What you're looking at when you look at a given stratum of any site is most likely a very long time, like more than one person's lifetime. Um, You have in cases where you can look at microstrata, like which are some sites that Anna's talked about in the past of sort of these, uh, the like very, very thin where you basically see like a season, a a season of habitation sweeping out the next Mm -hmm. season of habitation where it's almost Mm -hmm. like 
tree rings of, of habitation. <laughs> yeah, sure. This is so the idea of a revolution was an excellent hermeneutic for uh, mm, for a, 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 so just sort of a a framework for sort of understanding for for teaching or translating the data into something comprehensible. I would like to think so. I'm a big child, Stan. That's that's you know nobody's surprised like by it. that. Um, I think that child probably understood that these things happened over a larger scale of time, but it is a very useful way to think about it as there's this tipping point um, and some sort of like inciting event that causes something to change. Now, in the real past, it changed over thousands of years, likely uh, changed uh, more quickly in some places than others for no um, with with no value judgments attached and also probably changed in the same way several times um, as people who, for want of a better phrase, reinventing the wheel. <laughs> like it's it's something <laughs> that nobody knows you're reinventing it if nobody remembers the last time it was invented. Yeah. Uh, and and so that's so that's what was a great idea and a really great way to think about the past of these like these periods of ser like very substantial change uh very uh consequential change that happened and also like both in terms of their um like sort of depth of change and the breadth of change like over yeah. over the the landscape um whether there's any relationship among who's changing what when, um, not necessarily that it's diffusionist or that it has to originate no. in one place and end it's up in another It's a whole different place. show. Yeah. But that's why he had this idea is that he understood things through a Marxist lens, which understands things as there being a breaking point in circumstances mm -hmm. and a revolution that follows. This is all very, very reminiscent of, of the idea of like criticality, um, which is something that I've mentioned in the past, but it's just like the idea of systems experiencing, you know, systems that change over time, like anything you can talk about it as physics, you can talk about it in biology. So like sand piling up into a hill as you trickle it down or yeah, these you things, these systems reach a point and something tips the system over the edge and it sort of collapses or sort of re experiences a lot of entropy and then sort of reforms. But you also, what you just did there was do the same flattening of time. Like yeah. I no, absolutely. In that period of, you know, the, the water drops that eventually break into a stream that runs down the interior of my bathroom um, oh, no. <laughs> during a heavy rainstorm um, there. So that works mm. if we are thinking that there are several, if not dozens of generations being lived mm -hmm. during the time that that little water drop is forming and finally breaks the surface tension. So it's sort of when you start to think about that degree of scale Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's helpful for people to think about, but maybe it's also completely useless. But yeah, um, to say. so I want to talk about that Neolithic package and then just kind of put a button on on my mm -hmm. my child bit. Um, so the Neolithic package um, 
sort of provides the basis for, according to these these sort of um, older school, nearly century old um, (laughs) ways of, of thinking about this. So the Neolithic package provides the basis for centralized administrations and political structures. Uh, which themselves uh, both reinforce and um, are informed by hierarchical ideology or cosmology, so belief systems, uh, writing, densely populated settlements like cities, um, specialization (laughs) and division of labor. The follow-on to that is um, alienation from said labor, more trade or extent more extensive trade networks and um the development of non-portable art and architecture (laughs) so basically like monumental works um and 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 like luxury (laughs) good like this this like non-utilitarian things so um then which also things things that don't have a function um, uh, yeah. which is Again, also that's like another very, show also. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but so this great idea, this, this sort of great, um, hermeneutic that, um, no, sorry, heuristic, please cut that out every time I say hermeneutic, because I'm not sure. Cause I think I've been meaning to say heuristic the whole time. You've only said it one other time. Ah, so. <laughs> I'm losing my spike your audio. <laughs> We're doing so well. Oh, God. I want everyone to know that I am leaving the country in like 36 hours and I have neither packed. Which sounds like a threat when you say it. I know, which I have neither packed nor finished the thing that I'm supposed to be doing once I get out of the country. So this is a great idea. This is a great tool for um, understanding sort of the deeper past but and also uh child was a very accessible writer and wrote like what happened in history which is like my man really nailed seo uh decades before it was a thing (laughs) that is a searchable Um, phrase right there but but the but the the problem with the downside of that is that now the most popular um popular uh, way of, of viewing the past is through this idea of revolutions and that mm-hmm. that things happened all at once with like great consequence. Um, and so which sort of does beg the question, well, what caused it? Um, and and so it's like we accidentally made up a guy to get mad at in like in, in sort of <laughs> Uh, talking about the past in terms of be like, well, it's like it's like a big revolution, and you'd be like, oh, well, who started it? And it's like, ah, dang, we. <laughs> so, um, and so Th- there I, isn't, yeah, there isn't, there isn't one because it also wasn't that. Um, yeah. And so that's that's why these um, these sort of intellectual exercises and these sort of ways that we try to wrap our heads around something that is completely uncomprehensible, incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, both in and uncomprehensible. It <laughs> you, can't be comprehended. You, you can't comprehend it. Um, <laughs> that's um, th- this is an ongoing challenge for us. 
No, Both truly. me personally and also archaeology <laughs> as a whole. And so I wanted to make sure that we talked about that up top because a lot of the conversation around Gobekli Tepe is around, it sort of centers on its sort of like revolutionary nature of just like, yeah, like it's so different and like so this is like this like the sort of like this is the neolithic this is like the the like this is the spark this is the origin point of the neolithic revolution it's, like it started here yeah. and it spread out in the like puce form that spread across the landscape and michael ropes a cultural atlas of mesopotamia and wow. that and like that is well, that, yeah, like that, you know, we were both assigned in our first year archaeology courses yep. and like that, that's where it started because like there is a sort of, there's a pleasure that and like a, like this, this sense of satisfaction like, of there's almost like an objectivity to it to be like, if we could just find where it started, we have an answer. Mm-hmm. Like we got there, like, you know, you pull you pull the thread of your sweater and you keep pulling and eventually you get like get right, to you the, don't have a sweater. Yeah. Well, yeah, as it <laughs> Which were, is a but lar- larger problem, but. but, but that's so I, but I, it's not that the Neolithic revolution thing was wrong. It's not that it was a, like a theory that came from nowhere. All of our, all of the, uh, dominant, theories of of how um, archaeological uh, data are interpreted all of them are informed by contemporary forces and it's and um, maybe a, a helpful analog here is nobody th- so people will be like I don't like theory I don't do theory um, people also say I don't have an accent because like, that's all relative well like you don't have an accent when you are speaking because you are because it's you, you. are the one perceiving other yourself. other people have accents when they speak differently from how you speak mm-hmm. i think and this is just me speaking that a lot of archaeologists especially those who spend a lot of time in the field don't realize that they so like quote do theory end quote they think mm-hmm. that other people do theory when their interpretations or approaches are different from their own and it's almost like an accent that's um, a very good analogy oh I like thank that you oh good <laughs> well thanks that's the last thing i'm gonna say for a while <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry everyone no 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 you're doing great yeah and it's important to sort of think about the idea that for a single place and a single time to have been the spark of a revolution, like something that changed how humans live and organize themselves. There are so many components that would have needed to change in a short span of time. Like the, the complexity of that and the likelihood of it all happening in sort of that flattened time is really unlikely. Just like sort of the idea, you know, and, and so what we're seeing is an accumulation of changes. Um, and there really isn't one place that that starts because it's everything is sort of a mosaic of change. Or perhaps there's no place where it doesn't start. Because we're all changing all the time. I thought you said that was the last thing you were going to say. For <laughs> okay. I also just looked up hermeneutics and it's like about like understanding the bible huh <laughs> it's well like it a, wasn't that <laughs> can't we heuristic just do, 
Can I just do a, like a clean take and you yeah, can just give me paste a it in? Heuristic. Heuristic. I'll also do it in plural. Heuristics. Mm-hmm. So you can just. <laughs> okay. Drop yep. that in. I'm just going to put it in for uh, just. I'm going to mad lib it. I'm just going to put it in for random nouns. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So. Oh. <sighs> On the ground, literally. What does the pre-pottery Neolithic and also the post-pre-pottery Neolithic, the one with the pots, what does that look like? And so as Amber laid out for us, speaking very, very broadly, the Neolithic is a period of time where we see changing trends in how people lived and sustained themselves. So again, broadly and over different amounts of time in different places. People start to gather together in more permanent settlements rather than sticking with a more mobile hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And that doesn't mean that the settlement thing came out of nowhere or somebody had a meeting and said, why don't we try this? Even hunter-gatherers tend to group together seasonally in larger communities and then split off into smaller groups at other times of the year. Um, And so settling down to pursue a less schleppy lifestyle seems like a reasonable extension of that. Also known as my 30s. A schleppy lifestyle? A less schleppy yeah. lifestyle. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got pots now. Yeah, you still got places to go, things to do. <laughs> you got you got so many pots, you're just going to put all your plants in them. Pots full of plants. Yeah. Uh, so people didn't immediately go, ah, we have a village. Now we must do an agriculture. They still supported themselves by foraging and hunting as they were managing crops or managing animal herds um, and sort of developing agriculture. And, you know, it was a process. And from genetic data, it seems as if this process happened within populations already present in the area, rather than a new population sweeping in and spreading the good word of goat farming. So this is, again, we're talking specifically about the broader region of Anatolia. Things happen differently and at different times in other parts of the world. So highly regional, what we're talking about. And that's the super short version. So for a bit more detail, here is the abstract from the 2019 Nature paper about that genetic data. Quote, Anatolia was home to some of the earliest farming communities. It has been long debated whether a migration of farming groups introduced agriculture to central Anatolia. Here... We report the first genome-wide data from a 15,000-year-old Anatolian hunter-gatherer, just just one, and from seven Anatolian and Levantine early farmers. We find high genetic continuity, 80 to 90%-ish, between the hunter-gatherers and early farmers of Anatolia and detect two distinct incoming ancestries, an early Iranian-slash-Caucasus-related one and a later one linked to the ancient Levant. Finally, we observe a genetic link between Southern Europe and the Near East predating 15,000 years ago. Our results suggest a limited role of human migration in the emergence of agriculture in central Anatolia. So, like, the people who were there started doing things a little differently. So, are we saying there's a total of three genetic populations? The the hunter-gatherers and early farmers of Anatolia sort of continuous and then two other populations yeah later added on added into Mm -hmm. the mix later Mm -hmm. okay okay because um at first 
here uh, that it almost sounds like the first ones were Iranian Caucasus no, originating. No, it it's a and, it's confusing wording. Okay. So like what we have is a population of hunter OG Anatolians. Mm-hmm. And then and they're new and they're folks doing in town. They're, they start to do some some agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um and then later on in the timeline when uh agricultural patterns had already been established in the area. Okay. Um other populations came in, but what what didn't happen is a whole population coming in and and like farmer types swamped the local yeah, hunter gatherers exactly. and sort of overtook them, the population. Made them all made them all serfs and stuff. Yeah. That that's, sort of thing. That's not that, right. Just just to reiterate, that's not Yeah, what that's happened. not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh so speaking of Neolithic populations, people weren't just living in Gebekli Tepe. They were, they were living they were oh i thought you were saying they were also they like, weren't just living they were also and loving laughing and loving yeah <laughs> no no gobekli tepe was not the only place that people were living oh i mean is that better, is that better? well no so, i like i like very like uh, thriving <laughs> um no so that's the thing about only seeing human populations heavy quotes around seeing, yeah uh in, in like archaeological hindsight right You're, you don't get the whole picture and something has to be first right you're, you're often getting information out of order so even if there's a site you find first it doesn't mean it's the first place that that stuff's happening i mean that's a great point um, Thank you. I don't. I hope I didn't sound. You made it to like two weeks ago <laughs> when we talked about this. I like credit where credits do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but no, like this. Um, oh, I vaguely remember. I was a different person two weeks ago. Truly, um, oh. you've been a very busy lady. Well, I've been very busy and sad, and sometimes busy and sad at the same time. But like that is a point that that we made. Um, that. Mm. That that is Thank a you. that is a bias. That's like a logical bias yeah. that 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 happens. Um, and it's also inherent in looking at the past, you can't help it. Like the first the and it's also just inherent in life. Like the first thing, like the like you know we've like all imprinted on this site. <laughs> like that sort of thing of like this is the yeah. the first thing that you kind of put in your mind palace, and then you put <sighs> stuff in front of it. But but it's it's that it is a. I'm sure there's a like there's actually a term for it, but but this is a a real phenomenon where it's mm-hmm. the first thing we think of, and it's also another example of this is in like sort of in this whole like urban revolution, uh, like the the rise of urbanism. So for the first hundred or so years of Near Eastern archaeology, there was this understanding that cities developed for the first time in specific places. These happened to be the places where they had excavated. There were some Gulf Wars uh, mm. where it stopped being easy to get uh, get to and excavate. They started looking from space by doing um, like uh, landscape archaeology or like art, like satellite looking at satellite images and looking for signatures of archaeological remains, and then also being able to work in other modern political states that mm-hmm. were all that were part of greater Mesopotamia, um, the narrative shifted and that mm-hmm. it like the understanding of urbanism 
and the development of urbanism in Mesopotamia is different now than it was when I learned about it my first year of school, which like, and I'm not the thing about science, but, but also like, that's, that is some, that is another point of, uh, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it is in theory, self-correcting, ideally it's self-correcting or at least like self, um, the resolution increases, right? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like self-refining. Um, thank you. That's the word. But, but this is something that comes up a lot in archeology span that like things are where you look for them. Uh, which is very like Yogi Berra of me to say, there but it's true. Uh, there you are. But that is something that is very real about studying the past. And this place, like, and this place is like pretty cool. So, you know, <laughs> and yeah. so if, and you're like, let's work there. It makes, it makes you, an impression. And it, there's also just these very material realities of it of just like Mm -hmm. there's only so many people who are uh qualified interested and given permits to work in a place so if you've got this cool site let's look at this site that and so you might be that it's just a matter of there aren't enough trained bodies with access to permits and passports to work in this space and so like I don't begrudge folks like to, you know, hang out and work here for a while uh, because this is the site we know exists Um, and you can spend, you can spend a lot of money looking and time looking for sites and not finding them. In looking at the archeological record, you're often getting information out of order uh, depending on what sites you happen to find first. So Gebekli Tepe was one of the first big Neolithic sites to be found in this area. Remember, it was marked on a survey in 1963. So it has had more time to kind of diffuse its way into public consciousness. But what are we all about here on the dirt? Say it with me. Context. Giggling. Oh. No, you've you've read our reviews. We're all about context. So oh. let's put Gebekli Tepe in context with some neighboring sites. Um there's one site on this list that maybe gets even more attention than Gebekli Tepe, and that is Chetelhayuk. Oh, but that's that later. Site, yes. Yeah. But, and also that site is its own giant can of worms. We're not going to spend much time on it, but it was no. first excavated in 1958, and it's a Ooh. giant tell or mound that so far has revealed a lot of domestic structures, religious question mark figurines, and a general sense a very clean living is is what I found because what, there wasn't like a lot of organic in no seed in the oils <laughs> non GMO um, in the domestic structures there wasn't a lot of waste found um it's extremely GMO because it is later <laughs> than I know Quebec we Tepe. don't that we did you- we did a lot of emming of O's G's during yes, the Neolithic. We did. That was kind of kind of the mo of the Neolithic was to G M the G's. If there are any listeners left still listening, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, it, so Shatulik, extremely cool. We simply do not have time for that. So another site in the area is Karahan Tepe, which is likely even older than Gebekli Tepe. I say likely because it uh, the excavations, as far as I could tell, are ongoing and and. Like there's not there's there's not been a lot excavated yet, so like it seems like it's probably older, 
more information. Well, needed. and also just the way that, like, the way that publications work. Yeah. Like, if it's, you had been at a conference, you might know uh, more. Maybe I would know. Than yeah. we do. I wasn't. You weren't. Uh, no. So I'm going to quote. Uh, there's a, a PDF of this article that I'm going to quote from that uh, is going to be linked in the show notes. has lots and lots of very cool photos, which I appreciated as I was looking through these resources. Would you like to know the name of the article? I would. Yeah, I would love f- for you to say that into the Be- microphone. Buried buildings at pre-pottery Neolithic Karahan Tepe. Thank you. It's in. Um, it's in the. Turkish Journal of Ethnography and Archaeology in Turkish. Yep. There's no, you, it's okay. I know Turkic languages stress you out. Um, okay, so I'm going to quote. Just all those squiggles. Yeah, Missing dots. Good. Why'd you put the those surface, dots over there? The surface survey works at Karahan Tepe, which is an alternative site nearby for tourists visiting Quebecli Tepe. Visitors also searched for started in 1997. As part of the search, some T-shaped obelisks were detected that resembled the ones bearing wild animal figures in Quebecli Tepe. Following the discovery, the first excavations in the region started with permission obtained from the Ministry of Culture and Tourism's General Directorate of Cultural Heritage and Museums. The excavations have uncovered 250 obelisks featuring animal figures to date. Uh, just a note before we go further. This is a massive site with archaeological material extending for more than 10 hectares, uh, plus another five if you include, like, if you if you uh, extend the site to include stone quarries that were used for the pillars, which is like, it's not a living area, but people were there doing stuff. Uh, one hectare is just under two and a half acres, or a tenth of a square kilometer. So only a very small percentage of that material has been excavated, so reconstructing the whole story of the site isn't possible yet. So we'll dig into this further <laughs> in a moment, but from the limited information available to us about Karahan Tepe, the site interpretation suggests that buildings there were intentionally filled in, sealed, and buried. And so... As a case study, we've got structure A, B. The building was filled in. So so we can, you can tell that these things happened in sequence because you have a building that happened. And then these layers of fill are distinct. So it's not that sediment is creeping into an abandoned building over time. It's like this was all dumped in at once. So first, there was a layer of like sterile dirt to even out the floor. So they, they packed the floor down and then they filled it with a lot of stones. So I apologize to future me and anyone who can hear the local motorcycle slash four wheeler club that is just vrooming their way up my street. Oh, it's just like your, your general Monday night dudes rock. It really is like the, the local guys at the auto body shop, like across the way, just love their four wheelers. They spend so much time on them every day. It's so cute. And then they just go like, <laughs> me and do a wheelie up the hill. And they're so proud. It's just, just dudes rocking. It's fine. Just dudes rocking. Yeah. No, I, they're such, they're, they're such nice boys. Okay. Quote on this first layer at the very bottom, there is a dark colored filling <laughs> chocolate ganache uh, of 1.5 meters containing irregular and different sizes of stone and archaeological material, including a few pottery shirts. 
This deposit is covered with large stones that fill the entire space without leaving any gaps. These stones do not spread beyond the boundaries of the structure at the top, indicating the filling process was limited to the area covered by the structure. So like once they reached the top of the wall, they stopped. Moreover, it is noteworthy that large flat stones were used and arranged in places at the top. In fact, a large flat stone measuring, oh god, 2.65 by 1.65 meters was positioned in the bed on the east side. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit, but basically lots of stones, lots of stones. As this brief summary indicates, structure AB was deliberately filled in a series of sequential procedures. It's difficult to estimate how long this process took, but it can be assumed that it did not transpire over an extended period. The fact the filler material does not bleed over beyond the structure zone and that it is limited to the interior space indicates the structure and its boundaries remained visible, end quote. So it was filled with like carefully arranged. It wasn't just like people showed up with wheelbarrows and dumped in a bunch of rocks like the stones were laid on top of one another. And so the authors go on to suggest that these structures were and I sort of I like this turn of phrase buried with their experiences or deliberately filled in as a kind of monument or reference to the past. So once the building was done or determined to have served its purpose or no longer usable for whatever reason, it was filled in. And I thought this was really, really interesting because if you cast your mind back into the depths of time, um, when we talked to Danielle McDonald um, about the site of Harana 4, you mm -hmm. have this aggregation site where people are coming together seasonally. And so this is Epipaleolithic. So this is early before the Neolithic. Um, and you have these grass huts that are built and lived in and used. And then at some point at the sort of end of their use life, they're burnt. And so maybe building burial is kind of like this broad continuation of whatever function that process served. Mm. Unclear. But it's part of like the life cycle of the building. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you when can... you get like a more permanent structure, you know, if you burn a stone structure, not a lot happens. Get some hot rocks. But if you fill it up, you achieve the same thing. It's not a usable space anymore, but it remains there as sort of a, I don't know, as as something, a marker, a monument, a, just a... Yeah, it's like know. a pre-pottery Neolithic form of like the, you know, the National Register of Historic Places. <laughs> yeah, sure. You, you can't modify that facade because it's full up. <laughs> Did this happen at Gebekli Tepe? So this idea of structures being filled in, there's been a lot of sort of debates about whether these structures were domestic, whether they were ritual spaces. Um, and, same? You know, same, same? Why not both? Why not right? both? Um, yeah, and so the eagerness that archaeologists have uh, to identify something as a shrine or a religious space, a ritual space, um, I think people are less... Uh, sort of feverishly excited to do that these days. Maybe uh, that's because you're now like allowed to acknowledge domestic spaces mm -hmm. and non-ritual <laughs> spaces. Like maybe like it's something that this is sort of a um, um, proving one's usefulness 
like yeah. of of like the research to say like oh this is this is so important this can tell us so much about you know ritual like ritual spaces ritual function uh sort of and and thus its um relationship to like social organization or stratification mm-hmm. or like we got to find those elites cuz they're just like us um <laughs> but but now your one is allowed to consider other aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and to consider the idea that our concept of <laughs> separation of church and state, like separation of ritual and domestic or our perspective of how people would have used and, and understood the space around them might not be how it actually was. Ah, and so, again, here we go. Here's another example of, like doing theory, having an accent to what, like the, am I doing a theory? Well, no, like you are, you are describing uh, researchers um, mm. like sort mm. of having an accent, being informed by their contemporary society mm. where there mm-hmm. is a, a diff, mm-hmm. a difference between uh, sort of like uh, sort of self society, home, not home, uh, you know, church, state, those sorts of, <laughs> yeah. of, of, of uh, distinctions are informed because, and also I'm not mad at anyone about it uh, because like that is how our brains work. Like these are the patterns that we've, we've established in our brains through our habitus. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is oh like, this is an example of having that sort of, um, and a, like an, a, an ontological accent. Yeah, or yeah, just like a perspective bias. So I think we said the same thing. (laughs) We did, but I said it in a different accent. Um, So this paper that I'm going to be kind of summarizing uh, is by E.B. Banning, and it's it's in the journal Current Anthropology. Uh, It'll be linked in the show notes, and it's it's really um, it's really accessibly written. Like I really enjoyed kind of browsing through it, Um, but. This paper explores, this is from the abstract, explores the case of Gebekli Tepe uh, to illustrate weaknesses in some kinds of claims about Neolithic sacred spaces and to explore some of the problems of, identi- of identifying prehistoric ritual. Uh, consideration of the evidence suggests the alternative hypothesis that the buildings at Gebekli Tepe may actually be houses, albeit ones that are rich in symbolic content. So yeah, like register of historic places. Um, and then after... Lots of background and sort of introduction. The paper presents, I just really, I just really like it presents the reader with very like clear options. Option one, the buildings are temples and not houses. Okay. Like (laughs) there's, there's, you know, that's, that, that has been the interpretation. Yeah. By Schmidt. Klaus Schmidt. Remember him? Yeah, I do. Option two, the site was not a settlement. So if, if all of these structures here are are ritual and not domestic, if if ritual excludes domestic, then nobody lived here, right? The site wasn't like, oh, and it like was like a place that a place of pilgrimage, something like thing. that, and or like the way you know, that people, or maybe the way that the like people understood Stonehenge to be, um, yeah, and maybe some still do, and then um, following. Schmidt's interpretation of, you know, this is ritual and not domestic. And so the site wasn't a settlement. 
what follows is the site was a ritual center for hunter gatherers. Um, and so then, and so like all of their settlement residue was ephemeral. And so we wouldn't I see guess. it. Bennett then provides some alternative hypotheses. Um, and so, you know, there is archeological evidence in many, many different cultures at many, many different times for ritual or symbolism in domestic contexts. So like por que no los dos, right? Why couldn't space spaces be both domestic and have some sort of ritual significance? But also if we think about Harana again, like the idea of a living space being ha- having a, a sort of expiration date, right? Reaching the end of its use life and then remaining on the landscape as a place that marks something that that is both domestic and and ritual. Did you remember or know that Gebekli Tepe is Potbelly Hill? Um, I have seen that as one of the translations, like the cutest, mm. but not necessarily the most. It is very literal. Cute. Oh. Yeah. Um, so another thing that sort of helps any uh, interpretation that perhaps people actually live there um, is that it's a huge site and only a small percentage of it has been excavated at all. Uh, So I'm going to uh, quote from a 2020 article in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal. Quote, the pre-pottery Neolithic site of Gebekli Tepe is located at the summit of a limestone mountain ridge in Shenlorfa province, southeast Turkey. It is a 15-meter-high artificial mound covering an area of about 9 hectares. Excavations carried out in different areas of the site yielded megalithic architecture dated to the 12th and 11th millennia before present. Mm -hmm. The stratigraphy of the site comprises two main layers. The older layer 3 assigned to the pre-pottery Neolithic A, the Pupuna, Uh, is characterized by large curvilinear enclosures, while the younger layer two, because remember, law of superposition, Mm -hmm. but also you're coming from the surface, so (laughs) two comes before three, because you're working down. Um, Layer Mm -hmm. two is assigned to the early and middle pre-pottery Neolithic B, the Papunba periods, which features relatively smaller (laughs) rectangular structures, typically with lime plaster floors and crowded together with shared walls. So sometime in the interim, they discovered corners. One of the most outstanding, continuing the quote, one of the most outstanding characteristics of the site is the richness in imagery items, especially associated with the megalithic architecture. Many of the architectural elements, including pillars, pillar bases, um, I'm saying Pillar, not pillow with an accent. Um, <laughs> uh, portholes and gates are decu- decorated with breast presentations in relief, depicting a wide range of wild animals. I'm not sure anyone thought you were saying pillow. Pillars. But I washed my pillar cases today. So, you know, of the you layer. You call a lot of the discussion about Quebec Tepe a, a pillar fight. Mm. Mm. I'm just going to log off. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just read the rest of the script myself alone of the in the la- Zoom call. Of the layer three T-shaped stone pillars, the two central pillars of enclosure D stand out as they depict anthropomorphic beings, with the head <laughs> represented by the tra- tra- traverse, traverse, or transverse. Ta- 
Yeah. The traverse top of the T-shape, while the body is represented by the vertical part of the pillar or shaft, on which the orthogonal projections of arms, hands, belt, and a possible so-called groin cloth are depicted on three sides, end quote. Yeah, so the the conclusion of the article is basically that all of this was a single project, like all of all of the pillars was a mm-hmm. single project that that happened sort of over over time, but like at So are you say are you saying that they that they think that it was uh like envisioned that like so what I'm seeing is we're going to put this over here this over here this over here and then they work towards it or be like you know what we could really do we could have another t-shaped pillar with a anthropomorphic figure I really like how this one turned out can we have yeah there was a plan and they executed it over time okay yes Uh, that is what I believe the authors are saying and so they draw from this that previous estimates of person power, manpower, like the people who are working on this project should probably be tripled. And hence ideas about hierarchical societal structure should be revised for the people living there because this would have been a much, much bigger single project than previously assumed. And so it wasn't just like generations adding to something over time. This was, as you said, planned and executed. And so how does that factor into like hierarchical understandings of society? I think I think that, that this is the same line of thinking that is is it's in the same kind of category of thinking as the uh Mesoamerican um monumental architecture where it's like you have this intensely hierarchical society that can either conscript or compensate that much labor like in order to get that many people working together oh you have to, to be you have a to power pay structure them or exploit them not like I, th- I think that that's the gist not, of, of and that that the the assumption is that it couldn't be that there could just be this many people who are on board with something <laughs> I, th- I think that that is the the what you can extrapolate from this Folks, argument. yeah <laughs> let me tell you about this guy his name is Marx. That is such a huge assumption. That is not it where is. I thought and this I thought was going to go at all. That is that I thought this was going to be like a, this was a, this is a communal effort. Of, it might have been. I just, I think, I, I and maybe I'm interpreting yeah, I just, this conclusion wrong. Yeah, I just, I just don't see how, I don't see how the presence of monumental architecture necessitates the yeah. the existence of um of of labor exploitation and not- yeah because at other sites uh like at North American Mound sites there's evidence that this was a communal project yeah um, and I I, I think, think of, uh, I think Poverty Point is the one I'm thinking of I don't I don't I'm not going to speak to that because I have vague yeah. memories of a time that Anna wasn't with me of learning about sites where that was possibly not the case ah well it was in a theory class (laughs) things we learn now uh they're gonna be wrong in 10 years and so i want i want to uh circle back to that idea of um animal symbolism and like the idea that it's a ritual area has specifically to do with hunter gatherers oh yeah Um, let's circle back the idea is that this area is uniquely suited uh just because of the landscape is uniquely suited 
to have uh, catchment areas for prey, right? So hunter-gatherers would come to this area and would be able to trap prey very easily or like ambush or sort of stampede prey. And that the significance of this area as like a rich hunting ground is what kind of drove this uh, uh, anthropomorphic, uh, not anthrop- uh, what drove the sort of animal symbolism of the the ritual structures? I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know how I uh, how I feel about that. But um, we really just wanted to talk about Gebekli Tepe as like a place where people lived, and they probably did. They probably did live there, and I'm sure that further excavations will find that. I can't believe we've been talking for an hour and two and a half minutes, and we just landed on people probably lived there. Yeah, well, I think that that's something that that escapes most people when they talk about Gavali Tepe. That's like people don't land on that as like there are probably people there just living their lives. And I think that's okay. Before you have an absolute breakdown about that, we should probably end this episode. No, I just like I mean somehow this incredibly simple thing is like quite revolutionary to like. Hey, oh God, I just we're having our own. Revolution. Yeah, just I I want people to come away from this episode being like, that's a really cool site. People live there. That's what I want. Folks in Gobekli Tepe were living fully integrated lives. They were living, laughing, loving. Yeah, and and probably their home life was mixed with their belief system. Great. What a cool site. Very cool site. Extremely cool site and extremely cool, just like time period. Extremely cool to think about. Uh, I mean, there's a lot about. of time in that period, so yeah, that's the thing. I, like I'm a, pretty sure that like, your brain around it. If we took a time machine to the Neolithic, we'd be like, oh, yeah, it's just <laughs> they're just doing stuff. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know, listeners. I don't know if you were expecting a more sort of spectacular ending to this episode, but uh, this this is what we got. Thank you for listening, and we yeah, hope you enjoyed for this listening. episode. And uh, we got we got more coming. Yeah, and if you didn't, and everybody, well, there'll be another one soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you could go back and listen to old ones that you like more. Yeah, if there's really. one you liked, listen to that one and be like, uh, yeah, they'll do it again. Yeah, um, we'll get but, we'll get there. Yeah, listener, when you're listening to this, I will be. Um, in Denmark, uh, presenting. Everybody say bon voyage and good luck to Amber. Yeah, and I will say, talk, talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will be at the seminar for Arabian Studies presenting a paper that I think has about as strong a message as people probably lived there. <laughs> To be honest, I, more my, people need to hear that. I yeah, I think the uh, I think the thrust of my paper is, hey, what about this guy? <laughs> this guy so, did some stuff. Uh, yeah, this guy and is, then uh, more important than people think. What is important? Uh, even that's my next paper that I'm presenting <laughs> at the triple A's. Yeah, but it's going to have to be what is important? Even colon her, a hermeneutic examination. Oh God. Oh. <laughs> um. We're joking, but I actually will be presenting another paper uh, about mm-hmm. my special boy um, at the Triple A's. But again, I will have metamorphosed once again. Uh, I look forward to meeting that person who exists in November. 
uh, because this one is tired. Yeah, this one's tired too. So let's uh, let's put the episode to bed. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We really, really appreciate you. We we hope you're having fun along with us as we're just sort of punchy. Uh, but we love you. Uh, we'll we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.